How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Good. Um, well, I had the thought this morning that I probably should have uh, put the first, like, uh, bullet point or whatever, uh, outline point on your outlines is got conviction. <laughs> As I talked to some of the ladies this morning about what, uh, what James is doing, especially in these verses that we read for this week. Pretty convicting stuff. Um, but if, uh, do you have any questions to begin with today? No questions? We're, oh, we're working on it? Okay. I will address the apparent contradiction in don't judge, do judge, how do we judge. Um, I'm not going to give it a full treatment. I mean, that could be a a lecture all its own. I mean, there's even a part um, that I wanted to get to that I won't be able to about there are times, you know, God is is our judge. But there are times when he does give that um, mantle to human beings and and, and how we wield that, how we use that and in a godly and um, respectful and um, hum, you know, a way that should humble us is really important. Um, I'm not going to address that, so it's not going to be a f- full treatment, but I will talk a little bit about it, hopefully. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that just a little bit, the difference between if the Lord wills or uh, if, if God wills, uh, just, a, just a little bit. Any qu- other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Uh, thank you so much for um, just spring as it's coming by faith and uh, the warmer weather and the longer days and uh, just the, the changing of your seasons, the way you created Uh, our earth, our universe, the way you created us, uh, Father, to live uh, in tune with you. I just pray that the verses that we uh, talk about today would cause us to have a a heart more knitted with your own, Father, that desires to live in a way that honors you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So James 4, 11, and 12, these first verses that are already up there, I believe, um, are, are what Doug Moo calls a reprise of what James has been teaching us, what he's been saying to us about this community or more likely communities that are in conflict, Christian communities that are in conflict and what's been causing that. And so he's kind of kind of wrap all of that teaching up and much of that conflict had to do with ill-advised speech, which he's going to talk about again in these verses. But that ill-advised speech was stemming from pride and selfishness and double-mindedness, which led to quarrels uh, within the church. And so then he has these verses where he's going to put all that together and talk about slander. Now, more specifically, because we think of slander as um, maligning someone uh, unfairly or Uh, in a dishonest way. That would be sin, obviously. But the word translated slander means to speak ill of. It just means to speak against someone, to, to say something unkind. And so here, James isn't so much concerned with the truthfulness of what is being said, although obviously that's important, but it's sort of the backstabbing nature, sort of the behind the back uh, grumbling against 
uh, someone else that he's talking about here, which is very much related to what he's talked about. That is ill-advised speech that often stems from pride and selfishness and double-mindedness, and it often leads to quarrels within the church. Um, I, I don't think you have to you know, ask too many people uh, from different churches to find out, has that ever happened in your church? Yeah, it's happened in our church. It happens all the time. Uh, and so that's what these first two verses are going to talk about. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 say this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So James returns here to exhortation as opposed to the rebuke, uh, as opposed to the call to repentance that he had earlier, where he said, you adulterous people, do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So he was... He was exhorting them, uh, or not exhorting them, he was calling them to repentance here. Now he returns to what he's done through most of the letter, and he is exhorting them, he is encouraging them to not slander each other. Verse 11 gives us the first reason that this is wrong, that this slander, that this speaking against one another is wrong, and that is when we do it, we stand in judgment of not only that person, that believer, but also we stand in judgment of the law. Um, now, what is the law? That, what is he talking about when he says we're in judgment of the law? Well, it's the same law that James has been writing about, the law of Jesus. It's not a law like the Old Testament law required for salvation, but it is the law that Jeremiah 31 tells us God will write on our hearts. Uh, and, and it is summarized in the Old Testament and by Jesus. It is summarized as loving God and love each other. So love God and love one another. And we have a clue that that's what, in, in these verses, that that's what James is talking about it. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So love your neighbor. So that's the law that James is talking about this. But then in what sense are we judging the law? I understand I'm judging that person, okay? I get that. But in what sense are we judging the law when we speak against each other? When we speak against a brother or sister in Christ, or really anyone for that matter, we are not expressing love toward them. We are not living out that command to love them. Therefore, we are essentially saying that the law of love is not valuable or important enough for us to obey. We know the law, but we have judged it to not be worthy of our obedience. In short, we're saying we, we are denying its authority over our lives. We're saying, I don't have to follow that one. That one's not as important as my getting out this um, venom about someone else. Uh, I was, we were driving home from church, and I had this teaching on my brain, and um, a train passed. Every single one of those cars had graffiti on it. And I said, you know what, Jeff? The guys that did that graffiti... They knew that was against the law, right? They absolutely knew that what they were doing was illegal. Didn't matter. Yeah, it's illegal. But I don't count that law to be important enough to keep me from spray painting this car. Same thing when I speed, and I know I'm speeding. And I saw the little sign that said 55, and I see my speedometer that says 65. Eh, doesn't matter enough 
for me to follow. Anytime we break any law, essentially we are saying either I'm too special to follow this law or the law isn't important enough for me to follow the law. And, and that law does not have authority over my life. And when we speak against another person, we are in essence doing that very same thing. Over and over in this book of James, James has told us that true faith exhibits itself in obedience to God. So we exhibit the measure of our faith in how we treat each other, both to their faces and behind their backs. Now in verse 12, James gives us another reason why this slander is wrong, and it is because only God has the right to judge. Um, Now, he has particularly in mind, James has particularly in mind, the kind of speech that judges the validity of another person's faith. And truly, God is the ultimate and only valid judge of our faith, of the validity of our faith. Um, But what about this question? What about this whole idea of judgment? In the the same Bible, you have have a verse where Jesus says, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And the same Bible where James says here, who are you to judge your neighbor, also says, speak the truth in love to your neighbor in Ephesians 4.15. It also says that we are called to exercise church discipline. Jesus in in Matthew uh, 18 tells us, if if you have something against your brother, go to him. Tell him. If If he won't see what's right to do, go get someone and come with you and go to them. Go get the church leaders. And if he still refuses to repent, kick him out of the church. That's judging, right? That's judging. But we're not supposed to judge. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul plainly says, who am I to judge an unbeliever? I'm not going to judge an unbeliever. They don't know Jesus. But a believer in the church? Yeah, absolutely. If they're doing something wrong, I'm going to say that's wrong. That's judging. So which is it? Are we called to judge or are we not called to judge? Well, certainly when someone loves us enough, and I, I pray everyone has someone in their life that loves them this much. I have several people, I'm lucky enough to have several people who loves you enough to tell you the truth, even when it's hard. I'll never forget the time that I was angry at one sister and another sister said to me, sis, you are not thinking the best of your sister. You're thinking the worst and that's not right. Boy, I'm glad, she's right. And I went, (laughs) you're right. I pray you all have someone who loves you enough to tell you hard truth, to give you hard truth. And I pray that all of us are humble enough to accept hard truth. But in this sense, we have to understand that when we gossip or complain about somebody else to others, James is plainly saying that is sin. And it is a type of judgment that we are not qualified or allowed to dispense. That is not the same thing as having something against your brother and going to him and saying, man, brother, sister in Christ, I see this and it bothers me or it's wrong or I think you've you know, sinned against. That's a completely different thing than going, do you know what he did to me? That is, that, there's, there's not even any comparison between those two. And doing that, do you know what he did to me, wreaks havoc within the church. And we ought not do it. So now James is going to turn and, and, and begin talking about 
in, in this first case, wealthy merchants and their arrogant planning that they are making. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So in the next two paragraphs, in in this paragraph, uh, James is going to start by saying, now listen, and and speak about merchants. And then in the next paragraph, he's going to start with, now listen, and he's going going to talk about wealthy people. And there are similarities between these two paragraphs. Both of them, as I just said, begin with the words, now listen. Both of them are directed at people who at least compared to the vast majority uh, in Roman times were wealthy. Uh, So they're directed at wealthy people. And both are rebukes of their attitudes and their behavior. Uh, And so he begins with saying, now listen, you who say, so who are these you who say that James is talking about? They are the merchant class. They are those that would travel and sell um, items. They are not the super rich of their day. James is going to address them in a minute. (laughs) Um, But they were decidedly better off than the vast majority of people, and particularly the vast majority of believers. But were they Christians? Is James here speaking to Christians? There's disagreement about this, not as much as there is for the next uh, paragraph. There's disagreement on this, but I, I I, I, I believe... they very likely were. I'm much more certain about this paragraph than, than the next one. Uh, and here's the main reason why. Why in the world would James direct a non-believer to say, if the Lord wills? You only say, if the Lord wills, if you believe in the Lord. Uh, and so I think he is just talking to Christians and saying, look, you know, reorient your thinking here, reorient your planning. Because it's it, the underlying attitude is the problem here. It is an attitude that denies, uh, that leaves God out of the equation. It is an attitude of self-sufficiency that says, I'm the one in charge. So instead of relying on God, they are relying on their own abilities, wealth, and efforts. This is arrogance. Plain and simple, it is arrogance. The problem here is not the planning. James isn't saying don't plan. The problem isn't making money. He's not saying, it's not even making a profit. He's not saying any of that is wrong. The problem is conducting one's affairs as if there is no sovereign God, as if we are masters of our own destiny. And James is saying that this is not in keeping with who they are as children of God. Indeed, it is not worthy of who they are. In fact, one theologian says that this attitude betrays a friendship with the world that is therefore enmity with God. That that is what they're exhibiting. And then, as a part of explaining this, James gives us a very 
uh, vivid reminder of the brevity and the fragility of life. Essentially, James is saying, you think you dictate the course of your own events, of, of, of human events? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone next year. The truth is, we don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen five minutes from now. We have no clue. Life can change that quickly, no matter how carefully we plan. Uh, back in 2002, actually in um, 2001, my parents decided to take our whole family, their whole family, my three sisters and me and our husbands and our children, on uh, the family vacation of a lifetime. And they took us on a Disney land sea vacation. So two days at Disney, I think it was, on land, and then three days at sea or something like that. It was, it was three and four, maybe, three and four days. Uh, it was fabulous. And, and I knew our kids were two, six, and 12. 11. Six and five is 11. Uh, and I knew that this was our big shot. This, this was it. If we were going to make it to Disney, this was it. And I'm not normally a planner, and I'm not more normally a detail person, but I am a mom, and this was our big vacation. So I got the Disney Bible from the library. I read the whole thing, and I became like Little Miss Plan Everything Out. I read everything. I read. I sat Katie and, and Lane, or Katie and Josh down. Lane was too little, and I read to them about all the rides and all the different parks. And I got their their top, you know, five different rides in the different parks. And then I figured out what lanes were. And then I made this big matrix, this big plan of where we would go each day and what ones we would ride and how we would split up so each of the kids could get all their favorite rides. I'm telling you, it was a thing of beauty. It was an absolute thing of beauty, this whole plan, typed, written, ready to go. The day before we left, Lane was coughing, and I thought, oh boy, we got a problem. He'd had upper respiratory. There was a whole winter we kept him out of the nursery because we just, you know, he, he just was afflicted with upper respiratory stuff. So I took him to, the, to a clinic and said, look, we're supposed to leave for Disney in the morning. I got the plan going. We need to be. And so... The doctor said, he's fine. He'll be fine. The warm air will be good for him. Take him. We're on the plane. Jeff is on one side of the plane with Lane. I'm on the other side of the plane with the kids whose first plane ride. It was absolutely hilarious. We take off for the first time. Wow, this is great. The whole plane starts laughing at my kids. So excited. But we're sitting. We're in the middle of the air. We're uh, headed toward Orlando. And I hear this barky, horrible cough from across the plane. And I'm like, shoot. That's lame. <laughs> we get there. He hasn't napped all day. I put him in the, uh, in the crib in the room, and I think, I really need to stay with this kid. He's not feeling well. I can tell he's not feeling well. And he wakes up uh, from his nap, and, and I can tell he's gone, <clears throat> and then nothing else. I, and he's writhing. I pick him up. I run into the bathroom. I turn on the steam. I call for Jeff. You need to come. We rush him to the hospital. He has a 104-degree fever. He has a combination of croup and RSV. And we spent the entire, Lane and I spent the entire land part of the vacation in the hospital, palatial, beautiful Disney hospital, because he was sick. Plan out the window. We were pretty sure we were turning around and flying home. God was gracious. We were able to go on the cruise, and Lane was able, with the help of Albuterol, to enjoy that uh, cruise. But um, my plans, I should have said, 
if the Lord wills, we will make it to Orlando <laughs> and enact the uh, Disney World plan. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can plan, but we need to hold those plans loosely because God is the one in control. So James says, if the Lord wills, we should say, if the Lord wills. Now, there are people who would say God willing or if the gods will it, but he doesn't even say that. He says, if the Lord. He's being very specific here, and he's saying that God is the Lord of our plans, that, that uh, God alone is the one that is in control. Now, he could mean Jesus here when he says Lord. That's a possibility, uh, but both in James and in the Old Testament, uh, God is called the Lord. And so he is making this specifically Christian. It's not even just a religious statement. Whether he means Jesus or whether he means God the Father, either way, it's a specifically Christian statement, distinctively Christian, saying, if the Lord wills. But that's not some sort of magical saying. He's not just tack, saying tack that on like we sometimes do in Jesus' name, amen. He's not saying, and by the way, that has great meaning too, but uh, he's not call, saying it's just some sort of magical statement. It is a statement based on our orientation, our attitude toward God. If we're saying Lord willing, glibly, then our attitude is not appreciably different than those who are just making their plans apart from God. The important thing is that we have an understanding that God is sovereign and that we make our plans prayerfully before him, holding them loosely for God to do with as he pleases, to change if he wills. That is a biblical way to view all of life, for all of life belongs to God. So the proper attitude toward our planning, toward our future, is to consider whether our plans are pleasing to the Lord, whether they are in accord with his word, and then submit them to God to do with what he pleases. And then James says, you, you don't even just don't consider God. Then you go and boast and brag. In verse 16, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. That's a very strong word, isn't it? The, the problem here, again, is arrogance. In the NR, NRSV, in the New Revised Standard Version, it says, You boast in your arrogance. They are bragging about their own ability, their own resources. It is an attitude of self-sufficiency that while it may be very American, it is not very biblical. We must rely on God and God alone. If we see ourselves as independent from God and his sovereignty, we will fail. If not in this life, in the life to come. And James says, all such boasting, all such arrogant boasting is evil. That's a very strong word. He could have chosen an easier word. He could have chosen a softer word. That's not good. No, he doesn't say that's not good. He says all such boasting is evil. James is telling us that this is no trivial matter. This is important stuff because we are, we are not to live according to our culture, uh, according to the values of our culture. And then here's this last verse in verse 17. If anyone knows then, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, 
It is for them sin. That seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? It's like, what is he talking about there? He's been talking about our plans and the things we do, and all of a sudden he's saying, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and don't, it's sin. But he has a very specific reason for putting it there because he uses that word then or therefore. So if anyone therefore knows, so it's based on what he's just said. He has just exhorted them to take the Lord into consideration in all of their planning, and they now have no excuse for failing to do it. They know they're supposed to do it. So to fail to do that, to to continue to boast in their arrogance, to continue to plan as if God were not sovereign, would be sin, because they now know that that is what they're supposed to do. James is essentially saying to them, now that you know what you're supposed to do, do it, which is something like what Yoda said to Luke. (laughs) There is no try. Do or do not. (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to do that. And now, now we're about to get some theological whiplash, because this is harsh enough, right? But, but James is, is really uh, going to, to lay it on um, wealthy, the wealthy here and, um, and in a rebuke, uh, very much a prophetic rebuke. And he says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Wow. That is harsh. That is truth, Um, but it is hard truth. So let's ask the question first. Is James addressing Christians in this passage? Many theologians believe that whoever this addresses, it's addressing the same people that the last paragraph addressed because it begins with the word, now listen. They both begin with, now listen. And so these theologians say they must both be addressing the same kind of people. So some say both paragraphs are directed at Christians. Some say both are addressed to non-Christians. However, I don't think that's a valid argument because that is a similarity. There are a whole lot more differences between these two paragraphs than there are similarities. For example, whereas James 4, 13 through 17, the last paragraph, James wrote as a father chastising his children right? So he's, he's a father forced to say, look, man, what you're doing is wrong. You can't continue down this path. In this, these verses in chapter 5, he's taking on the mantle and the language of a prophet. He is harshly rebuking these people. There is also a difference in the people he is addressing. In the last paragraph, he was addressing merchants who We're wealthy by the rest of the world's standards, but in this paragraph, he is addressing wealthy landowners who would have been the super rich of their day. There's also a difference in why they are being condemned. 
In the first paragraph, they are being condemned for arrogantly making plans as though God were not sovereign. Um, and then in this paragraph, they're being condemned for their accumulation and misuse of wealth. There's also a difference in the harshness of the condemnation and the punishment. This, this um, paragraph is much, much harsher, and the condemnation is much harsher than the last paragraph. So, are they Christians or not? I cleverly didn't answer that question, did I? If the condemnation being spoken of here is eternal, is eternal damnation, eternal separation from God, then these people can't be true Christians, right? If the condemnation being spoken of here, though harsh, is some sort of chastisement, either in this world or the next, but it's not an eternal separation from God, um, then it might be Christians who are in need of a severe wake-up call. But then, let's say for the moment, before I tentatively answer the question that I'm putting off, um, let's just say it is Christians, then that begs a question, doesn't it? Why would James write, or at least call out, non-Christians in a letter that he wrote to Christians? Well, there's several possible answers to that. First of all, he could be trying to encourage his Christian readers to not envy those who are super rich because of the difficulties um, that they have in following Christ because of it. Or he could be trying to encourage his readers who are being persecuted at the hands of the super rich to say, hey, look, it doesn't turn out well for them, and it does for you. So, are they Christians or not? I'm not going to take a hard and fast line on this. The, the two theologians that I read disagreed with one another on this. To me, it seems most likely that they are not Christians. However, it is also possible that there were wealthy people in the church who thought they had faith, but were among those whose faith was without works and was dead, and that James is addressing them. But then they would not be Christians. But here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to say, boy, this is really harsh. It can't be about Christians. Because he's been harsh toward Christians earlier in this, in this letter. So I don't want to do that. I also don't want to assume that if we say, okay, this is not about Christians. I don't want us to assume that because this is not Christians, then it has no validity for us. It has no application for us. Because in the wealthiest nation that the world has ever known, these words sound very much like a modern-day indictment. They sure feel that way to me. I just saw two nights ago a commercial. I didn't hear the whole thing. I only heard the last line that hit me like a ton of bricks uh, for Infinity, another car commercial. The last line of which is, we believe that luxury can liberate. Wow. Their tagline right now for that car is luxury is so liberating. No, it's a, it's a trap. <laughs> it's a prison. We need to take James's words seriously here as wealthy Americans and all of us by the world standard are wealthy. As wealthy Americans 
one theologian I read in a little booklet that I just picked up last week says this. If this here doesn't make you uncomfortable, you probably don't don't understand James correctly. (laughs) It should make us uncomfortable. I think that's a good thing. And these verses also underscore for us God's concern for the poor throughout both Testaments. God is, in, in, is the supporter of the poor, and it is reflected in Old Testament and New Testament teaching that we too are supposed to be caring for the poor. Both the prophets and Jesus had strong words for those who would oppress the poor. But even if we think, okay, okay, I'm among the wealthiest of the, of the world, but I'm not oppressing anybody, I'm not oppressing the poor, even if we think that, it is far too easy for our possessions and our wealth to keep us from fully trusting God. Dr. Moose says that scripture warns that wealth can be a particularly strong obstacle to Christian discipleship. Now, for what are these people being condemned? They are being condemned for selfishly hoarding wealth in verses 2 and 3, which is fleeting. Even if it lasts a lifetime, it is fleeting. I don't think Warren Buffett's ever going to outlive his money in this life. It is fleeting. And he's 83 years old now. Pray for him. They They are condemned for defrauding their workers in verse 4. Not paying a fair wage is seen as a type of fraud in Scripture against those people. They are, they are condemned for living a self-indulgent lifestyle in verse 5. And they are condemned for oppressing the righteous. They will be judged. James says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. That day of slaughter refers to the judgment day, the day of judgment, and it literally says, you have gorged yourselves. They have gorged themselves only to be condemned. This is what Doug Moose says about this. This is powerful stuff. James's point then is that the rich are selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their own pleasures in the very day when God's judgment is imminently threatened. The last days have already begun. The judgment could break at any time, yet the rich, instead of acting to avoid judgment, are, by their self-indulgence, incurring greater guilt. They are like cattle, being fattened for the kill. That is convicting stuff. They have condemned and murdered innocent men. That is the practical outcome that not caring for others' needs, defrauding them of their wages so that they have enough to live. That's what it leads to, particularly in ancient times, but also in many places of our own world. People starve to death because they do not have what they need to survive. It says you've you've condemned and murdered innocent men and he does not he does not resist you. Probably the better translation. Uh, I'm not sure what it says here. They do not oppose you. Probably the better translation is he does not resist you. They don't resist because they can't. And the wealthy know it. The poor are helpless victims to those who are oppressing them. Well, let's um, conclude and, and apply this. 
This is a lesson, I think, in what should truly be our treasure. James says that the very transitory nature of our possessions, uh, and the possessions of the wealthy, condemns them. He says it testifies against them. Why would he say that? Because by trusting in what does not last, instead of in the everlasting God, these people are, demonstrate where they have put their treasure and their trust. They've put it in their wealth. They have focused on earthly treasure rather than heavenly treasure. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will, will your heart be also. Whatever we treasure most reveals the condition of our hearts. If we treasure possessions, they're fleeting. They're gone. If we treasure God and his word and his ways, that's eternal. James is, is, is exhorting us, in a sense, to make eternal investments with our lives. There are only three things that are eternal. God, his word, and people. And it is in those things that we should be investing. That is where our treasure should be. I'm going to tell you before I read this verse that's not there. That's interesting. Is there anything else up there? Okay, that's okay. I have a Bible. I'm going to tell you before I read this verse that I do not completely understand it, and I'm not going to uh, build a theology around it. But it is in God's word, so I know it to be true. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13. And this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he says this. I'll start at 10. But by grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. That's the judgment day, by the way. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. I don't know exactly what heaven will be like. Um, I'm excited to find out. Um, but there must be some sense, sense in which that we will suffer loss for the investments we made that were not eternal. I do know this. I do know I don't want to suffer loss. I don't want to be chastised either in this life or the next for having lived for myself instead of, instead of things that matter. I don't want to regret the investments I've made with my life. I want to invest my life in that which is eternal. I want to play for you a really short clip um, that is a powerful picture of regret. It's from Schindler's List, which tells the true story of Oscar Schindler, who, who saved 1,100 Jews from annihilation during uh, the Nazi Holocaust by 
employing them in his factories. He bribed the Nazis to have these people given to him to work in his factory rather than being sent to Auschwitz. They were slated to be sent to Auschwitz. After the war, these 1,100 people um, gathered to thank Schindler for saving their lives. And this is the clip. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. concerned with people than possessions and more in love with Jesus than we are with the world. Let's pray. Father God, this convicts me to the core that I need to do more than feel convicted. Father, would you please lead and guide and direct us each to apply these powerful words we have read this week to honor you and to invest our lives in eternal things. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. Thanks, ladies.